always a good idea. Okay, as we are going through, we're talking about common misconceptions, and over the last couple of Sundays, we're looking at specifically things that people are sure are in the Bible. We keep not getting as far as I expect to get, because we keep getting off onto really interesting conversations, which is fine. But that's why this is part three of something I figured at most would be two parts. But, let me ask, true or false? The phrase, the lion shall lay down with the lamb is biblical. False. The lion, doesn't the Bible say the lion shall lie down with the lamb? Not literally true. That is correct. It's very close, and the spirit is true, but it may not be literally true. Different animals, right? That's right. The Bible never says this, so you'll find a gazillion posters of it, right? I mean, all over the place. Everybody talks about the lion shall lie down with the lamb. I, I remember in, in college hearing an entire sermon titled, The Lion Shall Lay Down with the Lamb. Yep. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Nobody's lying down with the lamb. The, the, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. Or, from another place in Isaiah, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. And they will neither harm nor destroy all on my holy mountain. That's, that's what the Bible actually says. So why do we remember it this way? Well, I think we picked out the most fierce and the least and just put those together. Yep. I think, I, think that's a, I think that's a large part of it. Well, and you've just seen it a million times, too, now, so of course it's true. Well, that's the, uh, what do they call it, the, the Mandela effect? That once something has been repeated most, you know, over and over and over again, it becomes its own little truth. For years, people were sure that Nelson Mandela died in prison. Um, no. Oh, I heard it. I'm aware of that, but he didn't, you know, or um, once you report that there's prostitution and, and, and uh, white slavery is rampant in the Mall of America, once you report that and then other people counter cite what you put there, that becomes its own truth, even though it's not even remotely true. Pardon me? Fake news. Fake news, yeah. It, it becomes its own news. No, I, okay, ignore the politics for a second. That is the concept that's trying to be getting at by that meme of fake news. It becomes its own news thing because people said it. Much like the Kardashians are, you know, popular because the Kardashians are popular. It's like a very popular biblical imagery. You've got the lion, Judah, St. Brown, the lion, the lion, you've got the Exactly. There's even one point in Revelation where he's specifically called the lion and the lamb in the same section, right? Don't we, the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming, and he comes and he's a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, right? So you get this lion and lamb imagery about, about Jesus. It's easy to conflate things. Of course, technically in Revelation, he should look like this, right? Because he's got seven horns and seven eyes. I don't know. But here's the thing. Is that more or less the mental picture you have when you think of the slain lamb in Revelation? You think of something with seven eyes. Can't even be eight. Can't be six. Because we get freaked out by the idea of an odd number of eyes, right? I mean, there's no mammal that has an odd number of things. You can, well, it looks like a spider or something. Some sort of cyclops. 
Good point. My bad. Sorry, what were you going to say? That's kind of getting at I'm not sure he's bloody enough. Um, that's I mean, I true. see it there, but yeah. Exactly. My point being that in general, even if we find ourselves going, that's not in the Bible. The Bible's like this. He's, you know, and he looks like a slain lamb. You go, with seven eyes. That's what you picture and seven horns? Well, it's not usually exactly what I picture. Does it matter? Does it matter that you... I mean, it, like, like, like Gary said, it's like, it's close. The basic imagery, there is a lion involved in this. There's a lamb involved in this. And there's, there's stuff laying down with stuff. I mean, the basic imagery is solid imagery, right? Interestingly, the internet is filled, filled with conspiracy theorists wanting to know when the liberal theologians changed the Bible and removed this. Why did they change it to the wolf and the lamb? Why are they afraid of the lion? Because they're, see, they're consciously removing Jesus from the text when they change it from lion and the lamb to the wolf and the lamb. Because we all know the Bible, right? How important is, is it to stop and go, wait, is, is, is that what the Bible says, the things? So I want to keep looking at a couple things and say, is this biblical? Is this from the Bible? Is this at least accurately reflecting Bible truth, etc.? Yes or no? There shall be destruction and darkness over creation, and the beast shall rule over the earth. Well, good. At least you guys are still. It's not really Sunday school unless Eric and Randy are on opposite sides of the yes and no. Good. We have a I don't know, a yes, a maybe, and a no. God, that's what I like. No, it's not in the Bible. It's all right. It's all right. I need you for this to work, so don't worry about it. This is actually from the movie Them in 1954 about giant ants. Uh, so close. Okay, this is a good movie. This is actually the first of the giant bug movies, and it was actually a good movie. And then there was a bunch of really trashy giant bug movies after this. But this... This is an excellent movie. It's got a really cheesy movie poster, but it's really a good movie. And if you don't trust me, you're wrong. Okay, it is, because this is when scientist Edmund Gwynn, the guy who played Santa Claus, scientist Edmund Gwynn says, we may be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true, and then cites this biblical prophecy that's not in the Bible at all. And you go, <laughs> Except thousands of people apparently went to their clergy and said, when is that going to happen? I never even heard about that. Tell me where in the Bible this is. This was huge in 1954. And we look at it and go, that's just silly. Really? Really? Because he cited scripture. And in a culture where people were actively going to church and thinking of themselves as biblical Christians, they took that really seriously, and they wanted to know where in the Bible they were missing this. I could cite about a gazillion other nonsensical biblical prophecies that you get in TV shows and movies like this. A gazillion. Nearly, nearly a gazillion. 
watch, I mean, there's an amazing number of movies and TV shows that, that quote scripture, and you go, did you even Google that? I mean, it's not even remotely in scripture. There's all sorts of stuff in the Bible that you could quote, and you picked that Bible and said, as the Bible clearly says. Yeah, Schwarzenegger, end of days. A priest says, as the Bible clearly says, Satan cannot enter the house of God. What? What are you even talking about? Did you even read Job, the beginning of Job, where Satan's standing there chatting with God in heaven in the throne room? Have you read any of this? No, over and over again, constantly citing scripture that isn't scripture. Is that a big deal? Why? I would agree with you, by the way, that it's a big deal. Why? Well, people who watch the movies like in 54, they think it is truth. Mm-hmm. Well, nowadays people don't take it as truth. Oh, yeah. Okay, then, then it's no big deal now. Because people don't think the Bible is all that important. It's just a bunch of cheesy sayings about the beast inheriting the earth or whatever. There was, um, and this is a great place for it, but there was a, a news article about what had happened out in Vegas, and there was a lot of talk about um, Republicans, Democrats, and of course that gets lumped in then with Christians on the right wing. And people had quoted one that we looked at earlier about God helps those who help themselves. And I don't remember the whole argument, but they're like, see, clearly Christianity is, and they make the point is stupid and isn't true. And, and so you're pulling something that's not true to make a point that's not even what the Bible says. And then throwing it back on the Bible and on Christians and saying, see, this is why they're wrong. Well, and, and here, exactly. And here, like I said, in 54, they might have said, well, that's, that matters. But by the time you get to nowadays, they go, the Bible is just another thing that people quote or misquote. Who cares? Every time we do this, every time we attribute something to Scripture, every time we attribute something to Shakespeare that isn't Shakespeare, we make people say, I'm a little less feeling that Shakespeare matters, how much more so is something that really does matter, like scripture? I think part of what we're, we're, we're kind of uh, coming at really is, is the idea that uh, I'm not even sure that, that we as a culture think that there is like a Bible like, I don't think that we we think about um, it's more like how do people feel about the Bible and what does the Bible or the idea of the Bible make people think or feel or do and we care way more about that than the Bible itself so much that it doesn't even matter to us what the Bible actually says it's more what it means to me, or what I feel like it can mean. Right, or 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 like like you were saying, Sarah, like how how this makes me feel, or how I perceive other people are using this, or how like it's a it's it's a mythos, you right. know? It's not a thing. Right. It's not a real, you know, divine inspirational. Word of God, you think? It's, I'm going to give him a nickel after class because that feeds perfectly into the sermon. I want you to remember what you just said there and think about that when we go into the sermon because in the sermon, in part, we'll be chatting about 
how people are how people say, well, the Bible's great, but insofar as I'm using it, in, insofar as what I invest, I suggest into it. Okay, let's do another one. Yes or no? It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. False. Okay. <laughs> Randy and Eric agreed? Okay, yeah, this is totally in scripture. It's word for word from Proverbs 25.2. For centuries, this verse has been used to justify two different things. Number one, the power and unquestionable authority of royalty. The church used this to say, yes, the, the king has, has all the glory to, to be searching out matters. This is all about how the king gets to do what he wants. As well as the distance and mystery of God. God's always hiding stuff. That's part of his glory. It is glorious for there to be a mystery. Think about this for a second. Just think about this for a second. There are some things in Scripture that are unknowable, at least unknowable in their completeness. Can you completely fathom the Trinity? Can you completely fathom the, um, the, the interrelationship between free will and predestination? Anytime somebody goes... Oh yeah, I got this. I always, I always smile a little bit and say, "Well, then explain it to me," because people have been working on this for a couple of thousand years, and so far I've found problems in everybody's synthesis. So, chat with me. Um, there are some things that are mysterious, not because God is necessarily hiding it, but because it's, it's a very complicated, nearly infinite or even infinite concept trying to be wrapped around by finite minds. There are other things that God's like, "No, I'm, I'm purposely making." Revelation, or that last chunk of Daniel, I'm purposely obfuscating this. I'm purposely making this something that I'm not giving you all the details to, for good reasons. But is that really what they're getting at here? Because sometimes in churches they say, yes, the fact that it's a mystery makes it mystical. The fact that it's mystical means I can't understand it, and the fact that I can't understand it makes it holy. There are people, and so much so they made a joke about this in a movie one time, there are a lot of people who were upset with Vatican II because Vatican II allowed masses to be done in like in language like English or uh, Russian or wherever you're sitting there. And so people could understand what the priest was saying. And now that I can understand what the priest is saying, it just doesn't feel as holy. As long as the priest is speaking Latin, it seems holier, it seems more mystical. But now that he's talking to me in English, it just doesn't, it, I don't like it as much. It's not as mystical, because it's not as mysterious. But that's not all what this is getting at. The New Living, the Living Translation is a paraphrase. The New Living was actually going back to the Greek and Hebrew and doing an actual translation. The New Living Translation gives us a nuance that can help explain this. It's not a great translation because it drops out the, the word glory here. But I like that it's saying it's God's privilege to conceal things and the king's privilege to discover them. And what it's saying is, is not that God likes to hide himself away from us and holds himself at a distance while kings get to do real stuff. That's what this verse has been said over the years, but that's not what it's getting at. What it's saying is, is if God wishes to explain himself or not to explain himself, he gets to do that. It's his privilege. And he can glorify himself either way. 
If God explains himself, praise God. If God doesn't explain himself, praise God. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, how many times were he's talking to Job? Or he's talk how many times in Scripture have you gotten the idea that God's that that either either God says or a Scripture writer says, "Hey, glorify God and praise God for when He does explain Himself to you. He doesn't owe you a response." Conversely, this verse is saying, if 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 God wants to explain Himself, great. If He doesn't, great. But a king's whole job is to make sure he figures out what's going on and makes it clear to people. He doesn't get to hide stuff. Which is an interesting way to look at it. When you look at the, at, at the context of it, and if you want to look at the context of it some other time, Proverbs 25, especially verses 4 through 8, there's this context of, king, it's your whole job to figure stuff out and to help other people figure stuff out. God doesn't have to do that. He doesn't owe us anything. You kind of do. But if you take this verse totally out of its context, it'll mess with people. How can, how can you misapply this? How can misunderstanding this verse, oversimplifying this verse, taking it out of its context, how can you how can that mess you up either way? Either about the king or about God. He's the king of kings, so therefore you need to Okay, yeah, God owes me an answer. Of any king ever, God owes me an answer. Okay. What else? Well, some people have said, you know, how unsearchable is that? I could never understand anything of God. I, I don't even know why I would crack open the Bible. It's not something I could understand. Sure it is. Yeah, most of it, absolutely. And the other stuff, nobody gets. Yeah, you should totally talk, study this. You should totally try to understand God. Yes? Okay, that's actually, nobody brought that up, but that is actually an excellent application of what people have done in history, is that with the divine right of kings, the king is the vicar of God. When you hear the word vicar, most of us think of some nice British guy riding up on a bicycle going, and how are you? Um, but the word vicar, what does that literally mean? God's presence on earth, right? He is vicariously God to you. So the idea of a vicar is that he is vicariously the presence of Jesus to you. Which, technically, all of us should be, in some respects, or none of us should be, because Christ is already here. The idea that Paul should be vicariously Jesus to me in a way that Randy shouldn't. Like, um, no. So it is an interesting idea. But there's a sense that the king was supposed to be vicariously sitting in God's Judgment toward the toward the world. Okay, what else? Anything else? He runs around making things harder to understand. He runs around concealing things, and I've never appreciated that about him. You know, that's that's not the healthy way to look at God. Either. And and when he does show anybody anything, it's only to the important people and not to like me. <laughs> to kings yeah. and vicars and who did I say? Paul, not Randy, or was it Randy? Not, I think it's Paul, not Randy. Paul, not Randy. 
another one. God is a just God. He will repay the compensation owed us. He will settle the cases of his people. no-ish, but I'm going to go so far as to say no. Even though on August 1st, 2016, Joel Osteen preached a sermon on balanced books where he cited this verse above as a quote from Hebrews 10.30, and I wanted to give him credit that maybe he was just paraphrasing, but they actually put it down at the bottom of the screen. You know, this is Hebrews 10.30. God is a just God. He will repay the compensation owed us. He will settle the cases of his people. And he used that as the basis for an argument for saying, God knows what you're owed in this world. He knows that this world has been unfair to you, and you have lost what you shouldn't have lost. And, and you're not going dis to stay disappointed by loss and pain, because he knows how, that you deserve so much more in this life. So God knows your case, and he will give you what you deserve, and everybody cheered, because he's like, you're not going to stay in pain, even if you've lost money, even if you've lost loved ones and things, God knows this world is being patently unfair to you, and he will give you what you're owed. But that's not even remotely what that verse is saying in Hebrews. Without looking up, anybody want to answer to guess? Okay, if you've looked it up, you, you keep it you keep it open, but if you've looked it up, you can't answer this question. Anybody want to answer to guess what this verse actually is in Hebrews? It's it's kind of like this, but entirely different. I think it talks about the wrong. Yeah. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if you look at it, look at it. God is just. Well, yeah. He will repay, yes, settle the cases of his people, he will judge the cases of his people, yes, yes. By the way, for those who are going, well, what translation is he reading from? I don't know. I couldn't find any translation even remotely like this. The nearest I could come up with is that this is the Osteen translation, that Joel basically said, this is what I think this means, and now we're back to... This is what I feel like, what this verse means to me. And then let's put that up there as if that were the verse itself. The congregation cheered when he read this verse of encouragement. Because it is encouraging to know that God will repay us what he knows we owe. Right? That's what that verse is saying. When you think about God judging and repaying people for what they deserve, in this context, in Hebrews, you go, yeah! And you can't even say, well, if you're bad people. It's like, no, the context is the Lord will judge his people. You're supposed to sit there and go, oh, sober. You're supposed to think this is a sober thing. Yeah, especially with the, 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 the sentence that comes right after it. I know, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and again, Hebrews. 
Bruce is, is one of these books that Calvinists and Arminians both love. They pull it out, point to it, and go, see? I love that, you know. <laughs> it's obvious. It's obvious. <laughs> God's a love the one that gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in the name of Right. Who continues to believe. Oh, stop. You know, both sides look at verse and go, see? Hebrews is one of those books because since there goes, uh, you do realize even if you're a Christian, you could fall under God's judgment. That's not going to end well for you. No, they're meaning to go, see? And he goes, oh, I expect better of you guys, though, of course, because you're Christians. God was going, see? Etc. <laughs> but what I love then, take the, the, the big C and the big A out of there. Take Calvinism and Arminianism out of there for a moment. What I love is that Hebrew sits there and goes, in your face, encouragement. In your face, encouragement. In your face, encouragement to do this right. It's supposed to be sobering. To the people sitting there and go, man, I just, now I feel like I'm just scared all the time. Well, you, you didn't really listen to Hebrews. The person goes, yeah, it's not about me. You didn't really listen to Hebrews. It's a sermon. And it's supposed to be like admonishment, encouragement, admonishment, encouragement. This just became encouragement because, you know, the Bible said this. What are your thoughts on all of that? Other than, other than eye rolling and laughter. What are your thoughts? He's got the biggest church in America. Pardon me? You would think so, but he's got the biggest church in America. There's no lightning bolt coming. He's doing great. What are your thoughts? As long as people are feeling happy and people are feeling encouraged, they're coming to the know the Lord. Isn't this a Paul Apollos kind of thing? Praise God. I, I don't want to slam Joel Osteen. My, my point, I but I want. Yeah. But if you're not looking at the Bible, that's kind of how we know God. They're looking at mostly the Bible. It's, it's Bible verses that are vaguely correct. That's good enough, right? Well, okay. And I'll just go off on Joel here. Because any of us can do this. Didn't we just discuss this in, uh, in in small group on on Friday night? I think we just I think we just talked about this on Friday night. If you do things so that you get you have a good day here, that's the why you do things. Then enjoy that day because that's all you did it for. Okay. Anything else? Well, and I'll flesh out something else that Sarah was saying. Just because people feel good after they're walking out of a service, just because you quoted this scripture esque. It doesn't necessarily mean that people went to church. It doesn't necessarily mean that people came to know the Lord better. It doesn't necessarily mean that you drew anybody closer to God. And depending on what it is, you may have drawn them farther away from God. It matters, doesn't it? This is the ultimate example of eisegesis. Well, think about think about when all the flooding came along, and and uh, Lakewood closed their doors and didn't allow people in to use that as shelter. 
and later they said, I, our church was flooded. We, it was, the basement was all dangerous, and we, we didn't want anybody to get hurt by that. The upstairs, technically, they could have used a gigantic place where people could have stayed in and had safety, but we didn't know. But the immediate thing, the immediate reaction across multiple media was, oh, look at Christians. What a bunch of hypocrites. Because the biggest church in America locked their doors when people are drowning outside. Could have gone to safety. Yes, he becomes a face of Christianity. Is this necessarily Christianity? And I don't, again, I'm not trying to slam Osteen, and I'm not even slamming them for closing their doors. What I'm just saying is, is, is this really what we're wanting to be preaching? Yeah.
You made a noise. What'd you say? It's a golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Oh, we gotta know this one. And I'm not actually picking on you. I'm just trying to point out some. Surely we know if this is in the Bible or not, right? I know. Point exactly. I'm going to say yes ish. But I have to say yes ish. The Bible never actually says it like this. Not really. What the closest that you get is in the King James. There you go. It says, as ye would that men should do to you, do also to them likewise. That's right. And that's different, isn't it? Because it's not do what others you would have them do unto you. It's figure out what you would have them do unto you and do that to others. A little different. It, it, technically, it's mostly the same. It's, for the most part, the same sort of thing. But it's worth noting for two different reasons. Number one, we keep quoting what we assume is in the Bible. Because that's what we assume. And it's become its own meme, and that's what we quote because we... We've already quoted it, and now we're back to that Mandela effect. We, so we assume it's that way, and we should never just blindly or ignorantly be comfortable with doing that. Number one. Number two, there is a smidgy bit of difference. In Greek and in Latin, word order matters, but not for the same, quite the same reason it does in English. It's therefore emphasis. So the boy bit the dog, the dog bit the boy, technically are the same sentences in Greek and, and, and Latin. But the emphasis is different. And you might go, no, the boy biting the dog is different than the dog biting the boy. Right, because in English, the way we set it up, the noun in front is generally the one doing the verb. And the other ones, it's like, if I say the, the, the boy bit the dog, I could be saying, I could be trying to emphasize the boyness of it. I.e., the dog bit the boy instead of the girl. It was the boy bitten by the dog. Because there's no italics, so this is kind of the... Think of that as word order as being the italics in Greek. And so technically, the focus isn't exactly on deciding to do things that you'd want other people to do to you. It is proactively figuring out what you'd want other people to do to you and then making an active conscious decision to do that for them. It's not a huge difference. Not huge. But it is something worth noting that there's a focus here that you should figure out what it is you'd want people to do to you and then actively go and do that for them. Little bit of a difference. Interestingly, this more common wording came from a Catholic catechism in 1567. So all this, all these happy Protestants saying, do unto others or do unto them, do unto you. Knock yourself out. Really interesting though is that most modern translations actually write it this way. Most modern translations actually follow the way it was not originally written. They follow the Catholic Catechism because that's the way that most people remember it. So the, like the NIV flip-flops it because that's the way people are already quoting it. Which I find interesting. Which of course makes people quote it in the NIV that way because they're quoting the Bible. Which is that way because people are already saying it that way. Is that a big deal or not? Good thing or bad thing? change the Bible, not majorly, not a big deal, 
plus it's just word order. I mean, it still means the same thing, but you change it because that way, since people have memorized the verse wrong, now they've retroactively memorized the verse right. Big deal or not? Not as big as some of the other ones. Not as big as some of the other ones by any stretch. So is that okay? I'm not saying you should laud the NIV or burn the NIV. I'm just asking, is this is this a good idea? Change the Bible to match what people already think it says. It's okay-ish. <laughs> I think it's interesting to think about as a something that you're you're supposed to do, not a reaction to something. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You have to have intentionality about doing good, not reacting good. Okay. I agree. And it's, it's worth stopping and thinking about maybe even what both versions of that golden rule are saying. Because again, not a huge difference. Not a huge difference, but slight nuance. In general, it should be disconcerting to think that a translation that you're trusting has morphed things to match what people already mistakenly thought it was saying. I don't think it changed. Some people have gone just ballistic on this. Oh, I changed the whole thing. The NIV, you can't trust it. I'm not saying that. It hasn't changed it so significantly that you can't trust it. But it does make you stop and go, well, um, what else did they change? And is that significant? Did they change some things that are significant? I don't know that this thing is significant to me, but are there other ones that were? Yeah. I think it's just, I'm kind of neutral on it, to be honest, because I think there, there are lots of places and lots of different translations where they change things to make them easier to understand, yep. to make them easier to, to ingest, as it were. Um, and so, to me, it's more of an exhortation to, like, to use multiple translations and to learn Greek if you can and to press into all of the resources that we have. To, yeah. I mean, I don't, I kind of, I'm kind of neutral. I, I, I guess I would, I would say I'm ambivalent on it because part of me sits there and says, I, I'm with you. That, I mean, any translation by definition changes the original. I mean, we found, yeah. even looking at the, at, the, at the Spanish, there's something that Spanish pulls out that the English doesn't. John 1 1. You know, it's like, you know, oh, there's a nuance here that we totally miss in English. And then there are other things that the Spanish translation, I'm like, yeah, they'll know that's reading into it. That's not what the Greek was saying there either. By definition, any translation is going to mess with it. And yet, to mess with it so that it matches what people are already misquoting concerns me. And it leaves you with saying, I just don't know how much I can trust it. By the way, the King James does that with other verses too. So, I mean, it's it's not like, well, we can only trust. But it should be something where we find ourselves going, I want to make sure in everything, as much as I can, I want to make sure that when I'm quoting Scripture, when I'm reading Scripture, I'm actually focusing on Scripture and not trying to make Scripture morph to me. Not a huge deal here, but it should be something you go, huh. Uh, that is, I don't know about the, I don't know about the newer one. That's a good one. It's a good question. Um, let me, let me look at it. Luke 
six. Luke six thirty one. Um, do to others as you would have them do to you. That's the new one. So, yep. Anyway, for what it's worth, five hundred years before Christ, Confucius taught what we oftentimes refer to as the silver rule: what you don't wish for yourself, don't do to others. Still a very good rule. How is that different from what Jesus was saying? Well, Jesus is encouraging doing good things, where this one is just saying, hey, don't do bad things. You don't do good, it doesn't tell you to do good things. Yeah. But is there is there a place for both versions, both precious metal rules? How so? What, what does Confucius add to the equation here? Okay, let's do it this way. Go off of what Randy just said. How could you do Confucius and not Christ's rule? How could you follow the silver rule and ignore the golden rule? You don't want people to not tell you you're wrong. Not tell people that they're wrong. Okay, how does that avoid the golden rule? You no, I'm not well, well, the golden rule was, yeah, if you're doing wrong, you want somebody to tell you so you can correct yourself. Well, maybe not. You could sit there and say, well, I didn't kill him. You know, therefore it's okay. I didn't do what I wouldn't want him to do to me. I followed the silver rule. Anybody else want to add anything about how you could follow the silver rule but not the golden rule? to do the golden rule while avoiding the silver rule? Can you do good to people? I suppose it's theoretically possible you can go, yes, I did something, who haven't I picked up Lucy? Yes, I did something good for Lucy, which counterbalances the fact that I also did something bad for Lucy. You know, I did something to Lucy that I would rather people didn't do to me, but I did do this. Yes, I stole her such and such, but I gave her this. I did nice things. I mean, how many abusive, how many abusive husbands come back and bring roses later and give a, just profuse apologies and say now everything's great? I did what I would want somebody to do for me. I, I apologized. I gave gifts and things. I mean, you know, I also did stuff I'd rather they, they not do to me. But I, I, but I counterbalance that with all sorts of good things. Mm. What's the rational? Be nice? I don't know. I don't know. Alright. Yes or no? God will never give you more than you can handle. So is that a yes or a no? <laughs> no. 
I'm going to go on record as saying that's just a straight up no. There are tons of motivational posters and sermons and stuff out there on this. God is that he will never give you more than you can handle. Yeah, frequently will. Somebody read me 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Or you can just mutter it from the background. Okay. Somebody read it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So it is something like that. Seriously, somebody read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Okay, so Paul isn't saying that God won't give you more pain, more stress, more stuff on your plate than you can handle, but he assures us that God will always help us resist the temptation to sin, right? Yes? Well, we still sin. Oh, yeah! But he, he gives us the ability not to. Yeah, he always helps us to resist the temptation to sin. So when we sin, that's entirely on us. It's a bit like me, if I go over to your house and you go, I'm, I'm trying to dig a hole, and you're sitting there with your fingers scraping through the dirt, and I go, I've got a shovel. Here, take the shovel. And you go, oh, thank you. And continue digging with your fingers. Did I help you? Yes. Did you use my help? No. Whose fault is that? You. You're a bonehead. Why are you taking with your fingers? Especially when I handed you a shovel. God's like, oh, anytime that you face temptation, you can't sit there and go, I'm tempted beyond all men. No one could better off under this temptation. No. Everybody's had temptations like that. And God will always give you some possibility to get around it. There's always some way that you don't have to give in to temptation. You don't have to. So when you do, and you will, that's on you, not on God. Luckily, some of the same sections of scripture, like in 1 John, they're talking about, you know, you shouldn't sin, but when you do, he's faithful and just to forgive you. So yeah, yay. So ultimately, the emphasis of this verse isn't on our ability to get through things in our life. Which is how people will sometimes, when they sort of remember the verse, they'll say, yeah, God's always said, I'll, I'll help you through things. Nothing is so big that you can't get through it. No, 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 no. Ultimately, the emphasis isn't just on our ability to get through things, but on God's ability to equip us to get through things in life. Whether you use the equipment or not, that's on you. But you've been equipped. He's tried it, which is why I like some of these things. God will very likely give you more than you can handle. He will not, however, give you more than he can handle. I like that. Or if I can cheat and go back, hi, Confucius. If I can cheat and go back to the other thing that I tossed out there, God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we are given. Again, whether we do that or not, that's up to you. So how does that jive with what we hear Christ say in Matthew 11, 28? Oh, where were you, were you going to say something? I just was like, he does not help those who help themselves. <laughs> Preach it, spurge it. That's right, right? He helps those who can't necessarily help themselves. What does Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty-eight? 28? Matthew 11, 28. No, it's Sunday school, and I'm asking you to read scripture. Oops. No. I know, no, no, no. I mean, it's it, it's 
it's it, it's always a little scary to read scripture in public and have to find things. But can anybody can anybody read to me Matthew eleven twenty eight? What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So how how does how does Christ's promise there reflect what we're talking about? If at all. What is Jesus saying? Promises rest, but how so? Promises that you won't have burdens? That you'll never have a burden that you can't carry on your own? What's he promise? What's he saying there? Yeah. He's not promising that you'll never have a burden or that you'll never have a burden you can't carry. He says... Bring it to me. I'll help you. I'll give you rest. I'll be there with you. There's no time where I'm telling you you have to carry it on your own. In fact, there's multiple times where I tell you not to carry it on your own, right? If you are heavily burdened, if you are anxious about something, did Paul ever suggest what you should do when you feel like the world is too big and you would feel anxious about anything? Did Paul ever say anything? Never, never said anything. <laughs> oh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, we have this whole, yeah, you should lay it before the Lord, right? With thanksgiving. Lay it before the Lord and say thank you. And this is not to make people feel guilty, because all of us feel anxious about things from time to time. It's for us to sit there and go, that's right, why on earth am I carrying this on my own shoulders? Yes. Excellent. So, I mean, the whole idea more than you can handle is kind of a false, like, supposition in the first place. Because we can't handle anything. And now we're back to what we said last week, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the, 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 the first Corinthians passage, the context of this is a warning against idolatry. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you're going to you're going to go off and try to, you're going to serve yourselves, you're going to serve these false gods, you're going to do this, that, or the other thing. Um, uh, unless you turn to me and you rely on, on my strength. So supposing that we have any strength of our own that doesn't come from God in the first place, is it's super easy to think that, um, but it's it's false. We don't. Nothing. Again, that's kind of what we were getting at last week when we were like, God helps those who cannot help themselves by definition. Yes or no? A weak man knows the value of strength. We have a yes and a no and some frownies. Okay, actually, no. This is from Captain America. Um, which means it's still true. <laughs> this is when the doctor is talking to Steve Rogers explaining why they picked him to do the super soldier experiment. Because they're like, you're weak. If we gave this to a strong guy, he'd say, well, now I'm just stronger. But you're weak. You know the value of strength. You're not just going to become a bully. 
you're going to appreciate what you've been given here. Yeah, which is great, but that's not what the Bible is saying. But then again, is there anything in Scripture that would talk about acknowledging your weakness to understand what real strength is? Okay, one who's been forgiven much loves much. What were you? Somebody else was muttering. And I appreciate that. I like your muttering. What uh, What did anybody mutter? Well, it's in our weakness that we know it's God's strength. Yeah, it's in our weakness that God is made strong. What else? God chose foolishness of this world to confound the wise. Anything else? If you look up any of these verses that I'm throwing up there. Proverbs is saying, don't lean on your own understanding, lean on God. Know that you are flawed. This is kind of what Brian was getting at. Know that we are flawed. Know that we are weak. Know that we are incapable of it. And you could take that to self-flagellate. You could sit there and go, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm just horrible. I'm horrible. But it's, it's, it's not what Scripture is trying to get at with this. It's saying, wait, you can't do this on your own. If you can acknowledge that, if you can realize, you sit there and go, I want to lift a thousand pounds with my own strength. Well, you can't. But if I try real hard, you can't. You, your arms will not lift a thousand pounds. You can't do it. But if I work out a lot, oh, okay, then you can't. The strongest person in the world can't. Bench press a thousand pounds. It doesn't work like that. You can't do it. But if you acknowledge that, if you if you recognize that, not if you give up, but if you acknowledge that you will never on your own lift a thousand pounds, and that you need to trust in God's infinite strength, you can move mountains. Right? So we sit there and keep trying our level best. We're standing there pushing at 1,000 pounds, pushing at 500 pounds, going, why can't I move this? And you go, because you'll never be able to move it. I'm not telling you to kick yourself or to give up. I'm telling you, use the mechanism that can. God can do all things, greater than you could ever ask or imagine. If your faith is in God, if you genuinely trust in God, and he says, I want you to say to that mountain, be moved, then that mountain will move. You're capable of so much more than you are hoping that you're capable of. But when you try to ask it in your strength, when you try to do it in your strength, you're not going to accomplish it. When you do it in God's strength, you can accomplish so much more. Which isn't to say, God wants you to be prosperous and he wants you to have that Maserati and anytime that you ever want a mountain moved in your life, just tell God and he'll do it. It's not your genie. But it is something where you say, Understanding your own weakness gives you the opportunity to understand God's infinite strength. Yes? So think about how you apply the, the biblical versions of this principle. How do you remind yourself, in my weakness, that's when Christ is made strong. That's when I can glorify God. How can we remind ourselves of that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you love us enough to be honest with us. You created us to be perfect, and we are so not. But even in our perfection, you created us to be finite. 
And so I pray, Lord, help us. Help us to appreciate our finitude. Help us to appreciate your infinite strength, your infinite wisdom, your infinite ability, your infinite love, your infinite grace, your infinite judgment. Help us to appreciate you because we recognize our own limitations. Help us, Lord, to want to nail ourselves to Scripture, to remind ourselves of what you have said, and to build with what you actually said to us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can interpret, we can understand it at levels that people for 2,000 years have never understood it. And 2,000 years from now, more people will understand it at levels that we don't understand it today. Fine, Lord, please. But in your strength, in your reading, not just in our novelty or cleverness. And help us to make sure that we build that and base that and found that in your work. In Jesus' name.